Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. If you're a pro, you know that this is not efficient because you know there's a better way. There's also a better way to save. When pro customers buy building supplies in bulk at Lowe's, they save up to 20% every day. Buy in bulk and save up to 20% on concrete, gypsum, and gypsum accessories. At Lowe's, buy more, save more. Visit the Pro Desk or Lowe'sForPros.com for details. Discount applies to contractor pack items. Minimum purchase required, U.S. only. Westwood One presents The Polsters. The Polsters. And now, Margie and Kristen. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we're going to try another thing this week of dialing back the Trump just a wee bit, but we got lots of other political stuff, and we've had so many great reviews. Did we hit a thousand? Did we hit a thousand Yay! ratings? Oh, thanks, guys. We have an average of almost four point seven on a five point scale. Last that's I pretty checked, good on the like Uber driver scale. Yeah, I think so. It's probably better than my own Uber passenger <laughs> rating. <laughs> I would imagine. Um, and we got some really great reviews, including somebody who said that they didn't like. They liked that neither of us were interrupted by loudmouths. <laughs> I was like, hey. <laughs> oh, okay, right. That thing. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. So this week's top lines. What do people think makes someone rich? What do people think makes someone want to be rich? Uh, we will take a listen to uh, some polling data pulled together by Pew on what people think about rich and poor. We'll also take a look at some polling on what people think about the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's own firing squad. What is happening within the D- the Democratic Party and where will they go from here? Then we'll talk a little bit about criminal justice issues, a new poll that was funded in part by the Koch brothers. We'll take a listen uh, to what they're finding about people's views on that issue. We've also got zombie Trump care back in the news. But last and certainly not least, a story that we know the Internet loves. We'll talk about cats. Right. But first, before we get to our poll of the week, um, a word from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. 
One more time. Try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. So the poll of the week, just like the Oscars always enjoys movies about uh, themselves and in their own industry, we have a poll about the press and Trump. This is very appropriate post White House Correspondents' Dinner. That's right. If you just, like, just it, marinate more in this it's topic. Just like to come down real slow. Like just take the edge <laughs> off of your weekend by looking and listening a little bit more about this poll. About oh, by the way, I said uh, if anybody sees my husband and Alan Ruck, go up to him and say, "Hey, I'm a listener in the pollsters." And do you know how many people did that? How many? Zero. Oh, no. No. Because all of our listeners were doing far cooler things. I know. Correspondence dinner. You know, they're not like hashtag this town people in the bubble. Our listeners are real Americans. Yes, but some of our listeners are also insiders who were at this thing. We're not, you know, and after Jules came home from the first event, I'm like, hey, did anybody come up to you and say, I'm a listener of the pollsters? He's like, no. I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe. Maybe they'll do it after the dinner. And then, like, hey, did anybody go to you? It's like, no. <laughs> anyway, Politico uh, has a poll, which they did a really cool infographic. And they did a poll of the press about the press um, and the relationship with Trump. And, you know, it looks pretty cool. It's got some interesting questions in here about how hostile people think, um, reporters think Trump is toward the press. Um, two-thirds say that they agree with the statement that Trump is the most openly anti-press president in U.S. history. Seems like quite a strong thing to agree with, um, but that's pretty large uh, percentage who say that. Um, but what I thought was interesting is a plurality say they have about the same amount of access to the White House as they have in past yeah, the, administrations. The problem, it seems, and I saw some buzz about this on Twitter yesterday, is not that this administration is blocking reporters from seeing stuff. I mean, there are certainly things like the White House visitor logs. There are things that are less transparent. But on the other hand, I mean – Donald Trump loves picking up the phone and just yeah. talking to reporters. He's got a lot, he's been he's done a lot of interviews, right? right? So it's it's like there's a hostility, there is a friction, but that's different than them playing nice nice but actually never giving reporters anything. Like on the other it's it's the opposite. It's that he's very vocally mean about the media, but then actually is it's kind of like this, well, but I secretly love you. Yeah, frenemies. Cover my White House. So then they also asked a question, have you ever been lied to by a member of the Trump administration? 17% said yes, constantly. 46% said yes, occasionally. And a quarter said not sure. And 12% said no, which I thought, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's interesting, especially given it seems perhaps a little bit different than what the media narrative is about what comes out of the Trump White House. I mean, I'm meaning there have fact checkers and so on. So I thought that was interesting. And then they had a question. Do you communicate with White House officials used through any encrypted app? So we love these, you know, people love these stories like who is secretly, you know, ferreting out information using apps. It's just got like all the bells and whistles that we want out of a story. But only 8% of reporters said that they had done that. So, um, and then the last bit that I thought was pretty interesting was they asked, Do you think Trump knows you by name? And 12% said yes, 89% said no. Huh. Well, because there are a handful of reporters that he does, he will call you out by name. Yeah. But then other ones, I think he sort of just knows what outlet you're with. And so, you know, if you're with an outlet that he doesn't like, we'll say that. But I would suspect he knows more reporters' names than reporters realize 
that he knows. Yeah, I would think so too, right? Because all of that, there's so much talk about how much news he consumes right. that there's no way that he, and that like this is a real obsession of his. So, yeah, it's, you know. Well, let's talk a little bit about his life's how, work following the media, right? So he loves following the media. Do Americans love him? So this is your your periodic update on his job approval. Job approval is looking a little better. Yeah. Um, the Huffington Post pollster job approval tracker as of press time says that his job approval averages 45.4 percent, disapproval at 50 percent. That's that's the best since he's taken office. Again, not great in context against other presidents at the end of 100 days, but it's better than he's had since taking over. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it seems to be coming from a few different outlets. I know Mark Blumenthal, SurveyMonkey, I think he just posted something as we were walking in here about um, what they've been finding. They've been finding the same thing. So, you know, it's not – he hasn't crossed to approval or popular yet, um, but he has improved by a slight tick. Um, and his favorables are the same thing. Yeah. His favorables pretty much track or match with his job approval. Yes, right. And he is still underwater, which is when unfavorables are higher than favorables. He's at 50 percent unfavorable, 45 percent favorable. Again, you know, this doesn't these are not heroic kinds of numbers. They are better than he had during the campaign, which is to be expected of any candidate when you're kind of in the midst of a negative campaign. Your numbers improve after the campaign. Um, but they are just seem a little bit better than they were just over the last couple of weeks. So that's where Trump is. We're going to give just take a little bit our foot off the gas on the, you know, 50,000 different poll numbers about Trump. So we'll, although we might get back there a little bit, but, <laughs> but we are not going to devote the whole show to that. Um, but what was interesting over the last week or so, there have been a couple different stories about what Democrats are seeing in the polls and what that, what Democrats think that means about what happened in 2016, what is happening now with Trump's polls and what we should be thinking about in terms of 2018. And I think if you read some of the coverage about this, you'll think that there is a, a family fight, that there's a fight of persuasion versus turnout, um, that we need to be getting more, you know, the turnout argument, meaning that we need to be focusing more on getting our base out by getting our base excited, by making sure that we're, you know, talking to Democrats and solid Democrats that we're not moving too far to the right. That's kind of the extension of that argument, not just about the tactic of of turnout, but also making sure we're not letting our message drift too far um, away from a, a quote unquote base message. And then the other side being is persuasion. We need to be persuaded people in areas that uh, Democrats have didn't do as well as maybe we, we expected in 2016 or maybe even do as well as we have in the past. We need to be persuading those groups. And that may, again, that's the extension of the argument, may require a more moderate approach, um, moderate broadly defined, just more, uh, you know, something that seems more big tent. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of conversation about that. I, I, you know, there's a third theory, which is you don't need to pick. You can do, you know, things that excite the base can excite other folks, too. You don't need to, you know, pick a side. It's not that, you know, if you have, six, you know, if you move three points over here, you automatically leave lose three points over there. That's not quite how it works. Um, 
And there have been some folks who've been weighing in on this. So the folks at Priority, Priorities USA, obviously a big player in the election in 2016, released some research um, from some folks who have been on the show before. Um, and what they did, and there's a whole there's a whole deck. It's public, and we'll link to it, and folks can take a look at it themselves. They did um, uh, uh, analysis of looking at people who were Obama-Trump voters and how they were different from overall or strong Trump voters um, or people who were, you know, who don't vote as frequently. So they looked at a variety of different groups, and there are a couple of things that I thought were interesting, and I think folks should take a look and, and see what they think themselves. I think one thing was interesting that if you looked at sort of the mixed Trump people versus the strong Trump people, you didn't see a lot of difference on who people thought Trump's policies would support, but you did see a difference on what people viewed Republicans in Congress. I thought to me that seemed like a potential opening for Democrats going forward. Like maybe they, you know, maybe Trump voters are all of one mind or of more united on their views toward Trump, but they are not united on their views toward Republicans in Congress, which, you know, is obviously could could spell doom for some Republican members. So you can see some of that in some of the, you know, discussions that are going on in the Hill. Um, and then, you know, the, they asked some questions. Did you vote for Trump or against Clinton? It's a tough question to ask. I don't know if, you know, people may respond to it. It's hard to know exactly how people, you know, it's not that people aren't telling the truth. I just think it's a hard question to get people to answer. I think it's hard for people to know the answer to that. But the people who were strong Trump supporters said they were really voting for Trump, but about half of the people who were a little bit more mixed on Trump said they were voting against Clinton. Does that mean that those folks can be persuaded back on some of these issues? Um, so, um, I, you know, I think that's pretty useful finding in terms of, you know, what does it mean for Democrats going forward? I mean, what do you think when you, Republicans look at this and what do you think about Republic, the views for Republicans in Congress or some of these issues, which are well-trod issues that we've been discussing for a very long time? So I, I threw out this contrast on Twitter yesterday and got some kind of really interesting feedback from Republicans. And it, I was keying off of the two late-night comedian monologues that happened earlier this week. I think they happened on uh, Monday night. So first you had Colbert, uh, Stephen Colbert over at CBS doing a monologue where he was reacting to Donald Trump uh, sort of storming out of an interview with CBS's John Dickerson on Face the Nation and sort of saying, well, I call your show Deface the Nation. Like in Trump just kind of sort of being a, a jerk about John Dickerson and Colbert, you know, is like I'm going to stand up for my CBS colleague. And so he does his whole kind of monologue was this really like crude thing about Donald Trump performing sex acts on Vladimir Putin and like it was all Trump's mean about the media and Putin and it was like crude and but if you don't like Trump you were probably watching it like yeah you go Colbert like Haha, it's so funny watch Stephen Colbert destroy Donald Trump right and it like pushes all of those emotional buttons right. that the the resistance is super into over on ABC you had Jimmy Kimmel doing a very different monologue his monologue was about um how he just had a child that was born a week ago and when the child was born, they found it had a congenital heart defect and so immediately had to be rushed into surgery. I mean, just this like terrifying, terrible experience. I mean, he's crying during this monologue. Like, it's hard to watch. It's but, I mean, like in a in a good way. Like it's I mean, it's it's just powerful. And he, he sort of wraps up with a message of like, look, this shouldn't be partisan. Like 
in in America, you shouldn't have to be rich if you are if your child is born and has a life threatening condition. Like you shouldn't have to worry that like you choose between can I afford to save my child? And so you know, right now in Congress, they're figuring out what they want to do about health care. Like we should. It was basically like this nice, not super heavy-handed and I didn't think super partisan message. I mean he even acknowledges like, look, Congress just passed a budget that actually increased funding to the National Institutes of Health. Good. This doesn't have to be partisan but we need to you know, do more. And um, and I just – I thought this sort of gives two different paths you can take, right? Like do you rile up your base with like, God, we've got to impeach Trump and like Putin and the media and he's so mean and horrible and like – that stuff or do you win more with a message that is more of the like, look, we just want to make sure people get health care and like the people have good jobs and this shouldn't be partisan. And, you know, like it just seemed to me that those two monologues represented two different paths Democrats can take. And I don't know if you can do both of those. Well, I guess that's, you know, there's a tone and then there's the issue, you know, there's mm-hmm. a focus on the issues. And I, it, so it, it's a challenge, right? But I mean, I think and I don't it, know which path would be better either because like normally normally i would bet that the kimmel type approach is the one that wins you the most voters in the middle right but i am a done betting against like appealing to voters deeper emotional impulses right like i'm not betting against that anymore i mean if you have you know democrats getting really excited about you know low turnout specials about running for office and all that stuff and who are gravitating toward these more enthusiastic appeals then that you know that makes a difference i think the other you know at the same time we're talking about you know a lot of people and that's what the priorities poll shows and the upshot showed this a few weeks ago we spoke about it that most of the loss can be attributed of Clinton's loss can be attributed to Obama to defections to Obama voters who became Trump voters and do they respond to a different set of issues than you know folks who are just the hardcore Trump folks who get a lot of attention but are ultimately solid Republicans who are not going to be particularly persuadable and you know it's also going to matter you know district district by district. I mean, the poll shows that it makes a lot of sense that, you know, issues like trade and immigration are really important for solid Trump voters, are less important for the defectors. All that stuff makes sense. Um, You know, I think when you see a lot of people talk about Trump not getting things done, that's, you know, an all-encompassing kind of message that can appeal to a lot of people. Remember, we've shown in our polling here that Trump has lost a lot of ground, even with his own base, on getting things done as opposed to, say, going too far or causing the country real harm. So um, there's some nuance there. And I don't know, you know, I I think ultimately where a lot of this Democratic messaging work and discussion is going, however, is some consensus on what the, on what it is we're saying in our message. And I think still having Democrats come rally around an economic opportunity message, whether it's somebody getting the base riled up in their, you know, suburban blue district that is currently represented by a Republican or if it's uh, someone trying to flip a Republican-held seat who's going to use a more moderate tone but still has the same kind of core economic message, I think that's where this is all laddering up to. So there is another poll that has come out. um, And this one was done by Alan and um, Sherry Rivlin. And I have to just like personal story. I love Alan Rivlin. Alan Rivlin was he may actually be the first Democratic pollster I ever worked with. Like he Aww. set the stage for me to like wind up working with you, Margie. Well, thanks, Alan. Alan was great. He he was at um, Heart Research Associates. Yes. And uh, I remember being 
a fairly junior munchkin pollster and my firm and his firm would be partnered up on projects. Um, and he's like this total veteran and had like done this a million times and I was like a kid. But I would like to take a first crack at a questionnaire and would ship it over to him and it would come back just like document track changes like crazy. Like when a teacher gives you back a paper and is like, nice try. Try again. <laughs> um, and so I learned so much from like working with Alan when I was like a 24-year-old munchkin right. pollster. Feedback is a gift. Oh, yeah. It was like I, w- like I was – I mean, I'd be like mortified, like, oh, my God, like all of these questions. Wow, they were all garbage. (laughs) We wouldn't have learned anything. Alan's so right. But like it was such good feedback. So anyhow, that's my personal digression on me loving Alan Rivlin. Oh, well, that's nice. Well, they uh, were cited in the post and they have a LinkedIn post and we will put all of that in our show notes as we always do. And the big message there is that right to your point about the economic opportunity message that they're worried that Democrats don't have an economic opportunity message that passes what they call the Listerine test, which is Listerine kills the germs that cause bad breath. So like what are your Democrats have the right germs that Cause bad br- – no. <laughs> I mean, you- <laughs> right. But see – but you're right. And I've seen this in like advertising experts who are not political people will tell you this too, that you should have a sentence because a sentence, which is the same thing in the case that they're making here, the sentence is memorable. If you have three words, you know, strength, opportunity and, you know, something else, whatever, sunshine, people will be like, it's this word, that word, and I don't know. There's some words with sunshine, and I don't remember what the other words were. But if you have a sentence, you have you have to remember the whole sentence. So that's, you know, if you look at a campaign sign and you see three words, you can remember that we have had this all, we've all had this conversation. Don't, don't do that, guys. Yeah. Come up with a sentence. It can be a short one. Come up with a sentence that has some kind of meaning to right, it. Right, right. Like, you know, for example... Make America great again. Right. And in contrast, I love me some mittens. Love me some Mitt Romney, but like believe in America. Kind of unclear what that means. It is a sentence. Yeah. But it's almost three. It's kind of just two words. (laughs) Believe (laughs) Believe America. America. Right. And, you know, so – yeah, yeah, exactly. America's not Santa Claus. No, I, I mean, I get what they were saying there. <laughs> right, but, like, right, right. make America great again, it is it is not hard to envision what that can mean and what that can look like and what that produces. Right. So, again, if Donald Trump is – even if you think Donald Trump's not good at anything, he's kind of good at this, like, branding, sloganeering yes. stuff. Yes. And so they also caution – and this is not at odds with the priorities. I mean these are all just different you know, different ways of thinking about where we stand and where we're going, right? I think they're all useful exercises. I had some folks uh, on Twitter and on Facebook saying like, why are we trying to figure – you know, why are we spending time thinking about what happens? We should move on. Like, no, it's, it's OK. We, this is everyone's job to try and figure out what happened and also where we're going next. And so the Rivlin's caution that – Democrats have challenges in midterms that we don't have this like massive boost in midterms the way Republicans do. So even though Democrats have a lot of advantages, at least in the House, uh, maybe less so in the Senate going forward um, uh, for 2018, that we shouldn't get complacent, which I don't think anybody's complacent, but it's always good to have some numbers to back back that up. So now there's some really interesting polling that Pew has put together about why people are rich and why people are poor or why people think that people are rich or are poor. Um, I'm super fascinated by this topic in part because I think it it's 
it strikes me as a very interesting driver of just views on a whole bunch of other public policy questions. Um, what you believe a fair society looks like. Uh, this stuff just fascinates me. And whenever I look at polling on this question by age, which we'll, we can get to in a moment, I mean, you see that there are big gaps in how young people versus old people think you become rich in America. So um, Pew asked, in your opinion, which generally has more to do with why someone is rich? Is it that they worked harder or is it that they had advantages in life? Like basically, did you earn it or were you lucky? Republicans, 66 percent say it's because you worked harder. For Democrats, 60 percent say it's because you had advantages in life that if you have more money, it's not it's only 29 percent of Democrats think people are rich because they work harder. And only 21 percent of Republicans think people are rich because they got lucky and had advantages. In life. And it doesn't say what those advantages are. Somebody asked us this on Twitter. It doesn't specify that's, you know, up for you to kind of up it, to you to imagine right. what those would be. And then when they say, why is someone poor? Is it a lack of effort or is it circumstances beyond their control? For most Democrats, 71 percent say circumstances beyond their control. 56 percent of Republicans, on the other hand, say lack of effort. And so this this is this completely I mean, I don't know which way the causality arrow points. Right. Do you hold these views because of the policies you like and and these views are the ones that support the policies you like? Or does it go the other way? Do you say, look, I think if people are rich, it's not necessarily because they're great. And if they're poor, it's not necessarily because they're bad. And so we need a system that taxes heavily and redistributes because just letting the market do what it will is not fair. But if you are a Republican and you think, no, the market rewards people that do good stuff and punishes people that do bad stuff, so just let the market do it. I mean, that's this is a very fundamental question to an awful lot of policy outcomes. Yeah. And it, the partisan gap here in, in both of these questions is widening. It's widened over the last three or four years. And Pew has been asking this a few times. And it is central, although this is not broken out by race. They don't mention race. It is still part of a lot of the conversations that came up uh, this past election that often, not always, often had to do with race, um, where there was this perce perception on the left that folks on the right were um, looking at these questions through a lens of race, and and that had a role in uh, in candidate support. Um, and I think it's a challenge for both parties where for Democrats, you, you, we need to make people um, or have a message that encourages or that demonstrates that we believe that hardworking people can get ahead. That's optimistic and aspirational um, as opposed to seeming to take the agency out of out of the conversation, which is, I think, the other, the flip side or the way maybe Republicans who say they agree that, you know, people are poor because of a lack of effort or people are rich because they worked harder. They see the flip side of it as not having, you know, you don't have any control over 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 your own destiny. Um, so you need to have something that's aspirational. On the other hand, you need to, you know, for the Democrats, we also need to continue to acknowledge that, you know, things don't always work out very fairly and they're beyond people's control, whether you have a pre-existing condition that you had as a baby or, you live in a town that ha does that has in inferior schooling. Um, you know these things play a role in your destiny. So, um, so these are the challenges for both parties. Well, speaking of pre-existing conditions, um, there's a question that has been posed by the folks at Morning Consult about the uh, pre-existing condition exception that is now. I mean, as we are recording, being debated and discussed in the House as what we are. <laughs> jokingly calling zombie Trump care, the ACA, 
Akatu to Akatu Furious yeah. is back on the table. They still haven't come up with a new name, so <laughs> <laughs> to Trump Care Too Furious um, right. is is back. Uh, this question, so I'm going to read the question because it it does a lot of backflips, and it's not. I don't think it's. Tyler, I know I saw this. I was like, oh, no, we're going to. Tyler, I love you. We're going to say something. This is really hard to get this right. Yeah. But this is like you got to do a lot of backflips in this yeah. question. OK. As you may know, health insurance companies are required by national law to cover pre-existing conditions. Straightforward, right? Here's the question. Do you support or oppose allowing states? So that's it's like a positive thing. Allowing states to the option to opt out. So now you're it's a positive to do a negative of requiring health insurance companies. So it's an opt-out of a requirement to cover pre-existing conditions. So it's like a, do you support or oppose allowing the opting out of a requiring of covering something? That's a lot. And so you find here that they they find 38% of people support allowing states the option of opting out of requiring health insurance companies to cover pre-existing conditions while they find 50 percent oppose and 12 percent say no opinion. But I feel like that's a lot of like linguistic yeah. gymnastics in that question. Yeah. And I, it seems and to me contra- – I feel like we've talked on the show about data that shows that the pre-existing conditions is, is super popular. Right. So so I'm like I would be surprised if all 38 percent of those who say support actually know what they answered. Right. And just given how different that is from other polls we've seen. So a few – right. Exactly. And it's hard to get this right it's, it's really a very hard, complicated Because question. I'm sure as they were thinking about this, they're like, well, we want to actually not just test the value of, you know – is it important to protect people with pre-existing conditions? We want to test states. We want to test the actual policy that is happening right freedoms now. Freedoms and things. Yeah. So that's why I'm assuming. And there's also a zillion polls that show that people care about protecting people with pre-existing conditions. This is like a new thing for the audience, which is people who read Politico. So I get it. Um, sometimes when you have a question like this, there are things that make the question technically accurate, but just add words. So like – are required by national law. Do you need by national law, you know, to give allowing states the option to opt out? Do you need the option? You know, you could just say allowing states to opt out. I mean, there are places where they are technically adding clarity or precision, but maybe not precision for people who are reading it. So these are the trade-offs uh, we as pollsters are always having to go through. And we know you listeners like to hear us talk about this. Yeah. Wonky methodology stuff from time to time. Right. We won't go too far. So we won't go too deep on this. But, but the other thing, too, the other last thing, just to, you know, give throw a bone to the Republican side, is this does not test whatever this kind of new thing would be, which is – I don't even – however I explain it, it will be wrong. There's, when I walked in here, I saw that there was $8 billion being allocated for something. For something. I have to get real smart on this as soon as we finish recording because I'm headed over to CNN and I have to talk about this on the air. And I yeah. like to not sound I, like I'm not going to just – I won't cloud your mind but with it is, whatever I, it is. Who knows what has happened while we have been taping? My phone is, is on silent in my purse. Surely something like, very important. Anyway, so it doesn't include that. It doesn't include – Maybe we're on to Aka 3 workaround. Drift. The workaround <laughs> that would – protect people with pre-existing conditions, but also still allow states to opt out somehow. So anyway, whatever that would be, which is sounds too complicated, that's not included in this question. So anyway, so... So next policy topic we have up, this is kind of a cool one. So the the Koch brothers, 
uh, not beloved by folks on the other side of the aisle, um, have, have, however, uh, been pretty big advocates for criminal justice reform. Like this is a piece of the libertarian movement that finds a lot of common cause with some folks on the left. Yes. And I know that there's been work to kind of bring folks on the left together with the Koch brothers on this issue. This is a bipartisan issue in terms of folks working for it here. And if I were to add a bullet to my unsolicited disruptive briefing to the White House of what you could do to boost Trump's poll numbers after infrastructure and meeting with CEOs and getting rid of your phone, I would add criminal justice reform. I know it's not on their list, right? I saw Steve Bannon's list behind him and that photo that was tweeted out yesterday. Like, I know that this none of these this things are not on, on, the, the list. on the list. Um, but the nice folks at uh, Koch Brothers, or at least the nice folks who worked on this survey, released the entire set of crosstabs. And like I can entire courier font, like old school. Oh, yeah. School. This was, these were generated in Windcross. I'm like, I've used the, the software program yeah. that pumps these tabs out. Yeah. Man, these look familiar. Yeah. I've seen is, these tabs in my day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These are, this is like the full, there's no so top thank lines, you there's for no that. deck, there's we, no infographic. It is just the tabs full. The raw board. feed. Um, so we applaud anyone who does this. Uh, and this, by the way, uh, was put on my radar by Stephen Kent. Um, who used to be with Generation Opportunity and is the host of a podcast called Beltway Banthas. So if you're really into Star Wars and politics, highly recommend. I've been on their show twice. It's good times. <laughs> Always like to plug a plug a friendly show. Um, so in this poll, it shows that there are an awful lot of Trump voters who think that we should be doing things differently in our criminal justice system. 81% think that criminal justice reform is very or somewhat important. Um, this was interesting to me. Trump voters were more likely to have experience with the criminal justice system, and 54 percent of them reported knowing someone who is or has been incarcerated. Yeah. Well. 59 percent of Trump voters either strongly disagreed or just disagreed that police should have the right to seize private assets of a suspect, even if that individual is never prosecuted. Civil asset forfeiture. Nothing burns me up more than like these insane stories that you hear about people who have done nothing wrong and the cops come in and just can take all their stuff and are like, oh, we didn't charge you with anything, but yeah, you don't get your stuff back. Like, right. I mean, there's so frustrating. Um, There's nothing conservative or liberal about that. That's just, you know, that's just wrong. Um, And 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 most people are not aware that it even happens. Um, Fifty, 48 percent of people are not even aware that civil asset forfeiture happens. Right. So, you know, I think for this issue, it's an issue of education. It's something that for a lot of folks, even people who have some relationship or know somebody who's part who has had experience with them. Law enforcement, I think making some of these stories and facts known and widespread and making there is a conservative case for criminal justice reform. There's a liberal case for criminal justice reform. I think uh, both of those could be done in a way that puts this issue a little bit more in the radar. Um, they had – uh, and now I wish I brought my glasses in here because now these are pretty small. But um, uh, it's like a full-on eye test here of uh, all the – a variety of different questions that they said, uh, you know, how much you agree or disagree. And this was the percent that strongly agree. And the highest strongly agree was rich people have a better chance of being found not guilty than poor people. I mean this goes back to this fairness piece that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that people see as an issue. It is part of of this of this issue, which is who has an easier time navigating the system and who doesn't. Um, further down the list, 
is a question that gets at a comparable adjacent topic, but is worded a little bit differently. It says the criminal justice system currently un- unfairly targets racial minorities. That's high up on the list, but it's it's further down from this question. I think if you had, you know, if you change the word target to something else, then I think you'd have a different response there. I think it's though the- you do have a really big gap on that question between the Trump and Clinton voters. So the Trump voters are on many of these questions all about criminal justice reform. Um, but on the questions when you specifically talk about how the current system is racially unjust, that gap between the Clinton voters and Trump voters opens up in an uncomfortable but per- but way. Right. Well, there's some work to be done there. But, you know, as a foundation of an issue that has some bipartisan support that doesn't begin completely, totally lopsided like some of these other things, that this is another one. Well, last but not least, let's talk about cats. <sighs> That's great. I love cats. I want to love cats. You don't like cats? Uh, we had two dogs here at the office. I love dogs equally. I am truly ambidextrous when it comes to cats versus dogs. <laughs> like I don't – I really don't have a strong preference. We are cats right now, but we may be dogs one day, but right now we're cats. I have I have – I have gone from being a cat person to a dog person over the course of my life. When I was a little kid, I was afraid of dogs, but I thought cats were so cute. I got – my family and I went on a vacation to Charleston when I was in like the fourth or fifth grade. And the only souvenir I wanted to bring home was a sweatshirt with an airbrushed cat on the front and then like the word Charleston, South Carolina. Like it does not make any sense <laughs> when you see weird random tourist things and you wonder like who buys that? Like – Kristen in 1994 was all about this cat sweatshirt. Like, I was really into cats. And then uh, – and we never even had a cat. We didn't have pets growing up. Sad face. And then when I moved to D.C., my husband's more into dogs. And we would puppy sit for Freddie, my friend Mindy's cute white f- fluffy terrier with an attitude. And I fell in love with Freddie. And then my sister got a cat named Mimi. And Mimi is a terrorist. <laughs> Mimi's beautiful. She's a Siamese. She's gorgeous. But she is a vicious killing machine. You never know what kind of cat you're going to get. They all start cute as kittens. And some of them grow up to, like, kind of hate everybody. And some of them grow up to sit on your lap. Just doesn't like anybody but my sister and her husband. But then I went over – so my friend Sarah has cats. And I was apprehensive then. Like, my only experience with cats was the stupid cat my sister had. I'm sorry, Jen. I love Mimi. She's beautiful. I know you love her. I'm sorry to be insulting her. But – Okay. So Sarah says, come over you to my house. She's not, come know. over to my house. You get to meet my cats. And I was like, great. Yay. And then I get there and like the one cat sitting in the corner like looks over like, hey, there's a person here. Great. The other cat's like not even in the room. Like at some point wanders out and sits on the couch next to me. And I'm like, oh, this is why people like cats. <laughs> this is just like a chill, warm, snuggly fuzzball. Right. No, not trying to eat my food. Right. Not trying to claw my face. Like, this is what hanging out with a cat is supposed to be like. Yes. I get it now. They have pros and cons, cats and dogs. I mean, (laughs) they definitely, you know, they definitely have different strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. We have two cats now. We used to have three. The one that was most enjoyed kids is no longer with us. The other two... They don't really ever want to talk to a kid. If they never spoke to a kid again, <laughs> they'd be pretty happy with that. Like if they see a kid when they want to come in, they're like, you know what? I'm going to stay outside. Like, like I, I see that there are kids in there. I'm going to sit in the back patio. So they're, I don't know what they think is going to happen, but um, they just hang out with my dad all day. My dad, they're like my dad's BFF. So my dad and the two cats, they're all thick as thieves. So now cats are being polled. The New York Times 
gave us what we wanted. <laughs> a cat sample. A cat. It's a small cat sample of just 38 cats um, in Oregon State University <laughs> where they gave cats a choice between food, a toy, an interesting smell like a catnip, like catnip or a gerbil. A gerbil. Well, you know, oh the, it activates their hunting. It, you have to really get you have to really get cats to <laughs> oh, activate I their hope hunting. The were okay. <laughs> their hunting instinct, and that's why people like dangle little fish on sticks and stuff to get them to kind of to pretend that they're cat. You have to let them also pretend that they caught the thing. They have you have to let them catch the thing, otherwise they get depressed. Anyway, or attention from a human, and. Half, 19 of the cats, preferred company of a human above all other entertainment possibilities. 37% preferred food, 11% liked toys, and one cat liked catnip and the gerbil. So cats, they really do like you. Cats really like you, everybody. You can rest assured. So our key findings. Only 12% of reporters think Trump knows their names. Maybe you guys aren't tweeting enough. Democratic debate continues, but I think we're all headed toward a consensus of do everything and don't take everything for granted. Uh, criminal justice reform and pre-existing conditions have two things in common, tricky to describe in polling and enjoy bipartisan support. And tonight I'm going to pull my cats and ask them if they prefer a cuddle from me or a gerbil. But I'm not so sure I would like the answer for that. You can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters, individually at at Margie O'Mero and at K. Solta Sanderson. Find us at www.thepolsters.com where we have links to all of our fabulous polling resources that we love. Um, you can also find us on Facebook where we post links to these stories that we think are interesting and want to talk about more throughout the week. Don't forget, write a review. We love to hear from you. Send us feedback. Tweet at us. Uh, we are always interested to hear about the fun new polling stuff that you're encountering as well. Thanks. Bye. A Westwood One podcast production. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS, wireless, figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.